All right, last time that I preached some months ago, I preached on the doctrine of uh, divine immutability and passability and simplicity. And not only was that difficult for me to prepare, but I'm sure that was much more difficult for you to endure as I preached on those difficult doctrines. So I want to put your minds at ease that I'm not going to be preaching on some complex doctrine as if we're trying to comprehend the God who's incomprehensible. Instead, what I'm going to be speaking on is something that's very simple. It's very easy for us to understand. Uh, but I think we're all guilty in varying degrees um, of the sin I'll be speaking on this evening. And it's difficult to keep ourselves from this. And what I'll be speaking on is the sin of idleness, or you might call it sloth or laziness. And there are two reasons why I think it's important for us to be reminded that this is sinful behavior. And the first is it's not talked about very much. We all know that drunkenness is a sin, adultery, coveting, uh, bearing false witness. We all know and recognize those as sins because they are talked about regularly within the church. These are kind of like the big sins that we need to be watchful over and to stay away from. But the sins that which are most likely to find their home within our hearts and to be fostered are the sins that we are not so aware of. Um, they are the sins that are not spoken of often. And so I want us to look um, at this particular sin and see if that's something that we are guilty of, that you might repent. Uh, Chuck Spurgeon, as Pastor Dave likes to call him, has this to say, It strikes me that lazy people ought to have a large looking glass hung up where they are bound to see themselves in it. For sure, if their eyes were at all like mine, they would never bear to look at themselves long or often. If they could see themselves, it might by chance do them a world of good. But perhaps it would be too much trouble for them to open their eyes, even if the glass were hung for them. And so in preaching this, I'm not accusing people indirectly or directly of being lazy. I don't have anyone in mind, but just so we can be aware to look at ourselves and see maybe there are areas in our lives that we are lazy. That's the first reason. And the second reason why I think it's important for us to be reminded that this is a sin is because of work. That work is a moral behavior. And just like all other moral behaviors, we have a tendency to, uh, if we're not careful, to borrow from the behaviors of the culture that surrounds us. And this is especially true if we don't know that the culture around us is sinning. Our culture has a voice, and it's a very, very loud voice. That's trying to um, convince people to embrace sins, their immoral practices. They want to convince us that abortion is a right, sodomy is commanded by God, uh, that God created them both male, female, him, her, they, zen, zim, wolf, whatever you can uh, use with your imagination. They want us to convince us that these things are acceptable. And they do this because they reject God and they reject his created order. And so consequently, because they reject God... They will reject all morality, which is based upon his character. They will not just dip their hands into the immoral cookie jar, so to speak, and go for one or two violations. They will go for the whole thing. A culture who rejects God will also reject all morality, which comes from him. They will not only oppose what God has said about marriage. They will not just oppose what God has said about private property. They will oppose what God has said about everything including work. And their thinking regarding work will be fundamentally flawed. They will have a twisted definition of work, and a culture who rejects God will inevitably 
reject the biblical understanding of work, and become lazy and idle. So we need to understand what God says about work. So we are not swayed by the public's opinion. And so I want to look, how do most people define work? I think most um, in our society would define work as something that ought to be avoided altogether as if it's an unnecessary burden. Um, I'm sure we all know of someone, perhaps it may even be yourself, who tries to cut corners, whether it be at your job, the responsibilities you have at your home, or even, unfortunately, in your Christian ministry. People who avoid work attempt to reap the same rewards as those who work diligently. They want the harvest without tilling the soil and planting the seed. And so our society, again, has a fundamental misunderstanding, and whether you see it or not, there is a um, Marxist um, mark on our society that kind of embrace Marx's understanding of work. But they say that work is a curse placed on us by fellow men driven by greed in order to keep the working class down and the wealthy in their positions of power. And to that I would say, of course, of course there are evil men driven by greed. Uh, there have always been some employers who have taken advantage of people. And I think that there may be valid concerns about some employers, but there is even more room for employers to be frustrated with their lazy workers. I've worked with some men who were so lazy that if there were work in their bed, they'd rather sleep on the floor. And what I'm getting at is just because people abuse their authority doesn't mean that it ought to be abolished altogether or looked down upon altogether. So this ideology comes from Marx. Marx was allergic to work, and as a result, his philosophy favors deadbeat freeloaders like himself. So that should not be our understanding of work. On the other hand, Many Christians might say that work is not a curse placed on us by men, but it's a work that's been placed on us by God. And so what I want us to do before we get to the main text of the sermon this evening is help us to have a decent and solid foundation for why it is that we work and where it came from. And, and the answer for this is found in Genesis 1, that work is established in the created order. God created the heavens and the earth. God worked. God is a worker. And after making all things, he created Adam and put Adam to work. Adam was put in the garden to tend the garden, name the animals, and subdue all creation. And for all the work that God had given to Adam, he also gave Adam a helper, who was Eve, a helper to work. So they might both in their proper roles subdue the earth. So work, this is pre-fall, work is good. It's a part of the created order to work, rest. You work and you rest. That's a pattern, and it's a rhythm to life. It's not until Adam ate the forbidden fruit that the nature of work changed. The fall didn't bring work. The fall changed the nature of work. Now, I'm not sure what work would look like in a world that's not been corrupted by sin. I've not known that world. But I can tell you that there are no thorns and no thistles, and it wasn't until after the fall that Adam was to eat from the ground by the sweat of his face. Just because the curse is seen in work does not mean that the substance of work is a curse or that work is bad. Work is good. It can be difficult, but nonetheless, it is good. And God works as an example to us. He created all things. The triune God sustains all things. He redeems. He preserves. He pours out blessings, and he pours out judgment. God works, and when we work, we imitate him, and we are fulfilling our role to subdue the earth. Teachers, 
There are many teachers here. The work you do is good as you build up the minds of the future of our generations. There are a few here who work at Kenworth building trucks. You build incredible machines to transport goods. That's good work. It's a necessary work. Uh, nurses, you help and take care of the sick. That is good work. It may be work that's a consequence of the fall, but it, nonetheless, it is very good work that you're doing. Um, Nigel, Austin, I can't say what we do is good. <laughs> nonetheless, work, work is good. It can be difficult, draining, tiresome due to the fall, but again, it is good. And when I talk about work, I'm not just talking about work that we do for a source of income. I'm talking about building things, creating things, being a homemaker, uh, just art. All of that is good work because you're imitating the God who created, right? And I want us to be careful not to look down on ourselves or each other because some, Pastor Dave and myself were talking about this before, a week ago or so, there's a tendency to think that your work is not important. You might think your work is more important if you're on this platform preaching or leading in worship, and that's not the case. Your work is important. You're doing what you were created to do. Uh, if anything, in the new heavens and new earth, you will continue to work and create and tend to things. The work of ministers is over. We're here as a result of the fall. If anything, your work will continue. So now that we have a reason for why it's important for us, or two reasons why it's important to remind the islands is a sin. And we have a very brief, short, basic foundation for why the substance of work itself is not a curse. If you would please join me and open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he might be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. This is the word of the Lord. May the Lord plant its eternal truth on our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us from the mouths of men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would bless us as we feed upon it, that we would be nourished by it, and that it would produce within us lives of action, that we would not only be hearers of your word, but doers. Provoke us to good works, for we are prone to be idle. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
I'm going to do things a little bit different this evening. I know we typically do um, verse by verse, right, in order, exposition. Uh, I'm not going to do that this evening, but we will look at each verse, but we'll look at them in themes. And so, first, we will look at the immediate context of this letter. Second, we will look at Paul's commands as he instructs the church on what to do with these lazy individuals. Third, we will look at Paul's example. And fourth, or lastly, we will address the sin of idleness explicitly and bring some points of application and seek to provide a remedy for the sin of idleness. So first is the context. This comes from the second letter Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the uh, capital of Macedonia in the Greek region, and in fact, Thessalonica exists to this day. It's located in Greece, except now it's called Thessaloniki. And this was a very wealthy and prosperous city. It was under Roman rule, but they were considered a free city. So uh, they were allowed to self-govern themselves with a council and with magistrates. And so long as they didn't violate any Roman law or seek to provoke disorder or a rebellion, Rome pretty well just left them be. They could do what they wanted. And this letter was written to them just a few months, about six months, after Paul had written the first one to them, First Thessalonians. And Paul is revisiting an issue that he had tried to correct in his first letter. And it seems that the Thessalonian church was plagued with lazy people. Um, you might call them deadbeats or freeloaders. And the justification for their laziness was rooted in a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching concerning the second coming of Christ. So we have to remember this is a very young church. This is one of the earliest letters that Paul had written. And the only way they knew how to live was based on the teachings of the apostles. There was no New Testament yet. And Paul was speaking constantly about the second coming of Christ, how that it was imminent. And they thought it was so imminent that there was no reason to do anything. Christ will return soon. Just put down your tools, relax. The world's going to be changed. Don't do anything. There's no point. There's no point. And uh, we, believe it or not, still see this to this day. To an extent, remember the Mayan calendar in 2012? Everyone thought the world was ending. The apocalypse was, behind, behind, uh, was upon us. And some Christians even thought that Christ was returning. And I remember seeing headlines of people quitting their jobs, selling their homes, because they thought it was the end. Uh, it's foolish. And so, to be clear, the New Testament does teach that at any moment Christ may return. No one knows. It could be today. It could be 10,000 years from now. We do not know. But the principle for the Christian is this. It is to live as though Christ's return could be, could be today, but continue on with life as though he won't for many, many years to come. And not only was there a misunderstanding of Paul's teaching in his first letter, but it also appears that some had, had uh, forged Paul's signatures claiming to be an apostle, saying that Christ had returned. And so this was all the more reason to do away with earth labors, because Christ is here. The earth is going to be transformed. Why plan for things years down the road if Christ has already returned? So Paul is writing this letter to instruct the people that there are many things which must take place. This is in the chapter before. And in order to correct their sinful behavior, their idleness or laziness. So that is the context surrounding this letter. Uh, second, let's look at Paul's commands as to how to handle these idle brothers. And his commands can be found at the beginning and end of this passage. It's in verse 6 and in 12 through 15. So Paul starts off by saying, Now we command you, brothers, 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So here Paul uses his apostolic authority, saying, We command you, brothers, we order you. Now this is particularly strong language. Uh, if Pastor Dave or myself were to come to you, one of you, and say, We command you to do something, it might cause you to recoil a little bit. It might make you uncomfortable, be a little off-putting. And to some degree, there is an authority for leadership, so long as it's a biblical command. But Paul doesn't appeal solely to his own authority. He appeals to the authority that Christ has placed upon him. He is appealing to the authority of Christ, who is the head of his church, and can, as the spiritual head, instruct the body. We remember that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when the apostles speak, they are speaking out the very word of God. And by Paul issuing this command, it is intended that the people ought to respond reverently, as if this comes not from a mortal man, but from Christ himself. And so by Christ's authority, he commands them to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. So Paul is speaking of a brother. This is a fellow believer. It is a fellow believer who is walking in idleness, which means it's a lifestyle. It's a consistent behavior. It's common practice. It's his vocation. This is a member of the church who has a vocation of not having a vocation. The one who walks in idleness is not someone who has suddenly come under a financial burden by no fault of their own, to be clear. This isn't people who are genuinely in need. This is not someone who has fallen sick or ill, who have been born with disabilities. This is not about the person who is not able to work. This is about the person who is not willing to work. This is the person who chooses not to work and chooses to do absolutely nothing with his time. And the reason why this is so serious is because these lazy people or these freeloaders, they would presume upon the charity of the church in order to receive food, shelter, and clothing. And what they were doing was a burden to the church. And it was crippling the church's ability to care for the people who were truly in need. The church is to care for widows, it's to care for orphans, the persecuted, the disabled. But out of the selfishness, out of selfishness, the idle relieve themselves of their own burden and they place it on their neighbor's back and say, you take care of me. I will not take care of myself. Now, I'm sure there were some people who were provoked to idleness, certainly due to their misunderstanding of the return of Christ, but I, I can't help but think that there were some who were already prone to laziness and found this to be an acceptable avenue which could serve as an excuse for their sin. So, they were, so there are people saying to the effect, I'm a fellow brother in Christ. We are supposed to love and help each other. They ought to provide for me for the short period of time. And in doing so, they take advantage of the church's charity, their food, their clothing, shelter. And this is an inversion of what the individuals in the church are supposed to do. We are to be generous givers. We are not to be takers. America has historically been known for its Protestant work ethic, which had its understanding that we work to the glory of God and to provide resources to our families and to those in need. So work has been understood as a means by which we could be charitable, right? You don't work to harbor up things for yourself. You work to take care of your family and others around you who are in need. The sluggard in his laziness forsakes his responsibility to be charitable to others. He cannot be charitable because he has not, because he hasn't done anything. 
The sluggard doesn't give, he only takes, and his selfishness is revealed. And Paul commands this church how to deal with these people. He tells them to keep away. Keep away from these brothers who are walking in idleness. And Paul is commanding church discipline. We know that there are varying forms of church discipline. There are uh, private matters, which are dealt with privately. There are public matters, which are dealt with publicly. And those who persist in sin, harboring a stubborn refusal to repent, are then excommunicated. So this isn't a private matter, people taking advantage of their brothers and sisters. This is a public matter, and so it's to be dealt with publicly, and he commands the church, by the authority of Christ, have nothing to do with them. Leave them be, if they will not work. Again, this is not someone, maybe, who is seeking employment, trying to find a job. This isn't someone who's trying to uh, make ends meet, but is just having a hard time. This is the one, this is not the one who cannot work, but this is the one who will not work. So if they refuse to put their hand in the plow, Paul says, keep away from them. It's their own fault if they go hungry. In verse 12, Paul commands and encourages the idle to do their own work and to earn their own living. He is calling them to repent. He says, you who are lazy, get to work. I command you, repent. And in verse 14, if the idle do not repent, according to Paul's instructions, the church is then told to mark out those individuals. Don't help them and let them be put to shame. Now that's something that our culture doesn't like today. Shaming is frowned upon, but Paul seems to think that shame is an appropriate tool which can prick the heart of a stubborn believer and cause them to then walk and obedience. And I think the picture here is that sin is shameful. And if people are to repent, they must first feel the shame for their sinful behaviors. If sinful people are coddled, then there is incentive for them to be comfortable in their sin. You take away the shame when you coddle people in their sin. And so Paul says, may they be put to shame. Don't accommodate them. If they repent, be charitable. Help those brothers, but if they persist in rebellion, leave them be and excommunicate them. Now, there is some debate among many commentaries I've read. Some are saying he's not going for excommunication. Some would say it's a, it's a milder form of, of uh, church discipline. I'm convinced it's excommunication. If you guys want to talk about it, we can. Uh, but they, the reason why people might not think it's excommunication is in verse 15, Paul says, uh, not to consider them an enemy, but to warn them as a brother. So what is Paul talking about? How is that excommunication if Paul is telling them not to warn them or to regard them as an enemy? So I think what Paul has in view here is he's reminding the church of its purpose in church discipline and excommunication. Excommunication is not to be wielded as a weapon. It's to be used as a loving device of rescue. And it's likely that the people viewed these bums as enemies, right? They were probably very irritated in light of them being taken advantage of. So there'd be a temptation to use excommunication as a sword to settle the score, so to speak, right? To get even at these people who have been doing wrong to them. They'd be tempted to practice church discipline with a desire to harm rather than to restore. Excommunication from the church is meant to show people the severity of their sin 
in order that they may be restored. So Paul reminds them, if, if these people do not repent and they persist in their idleness, you are to keep away from them, but do not treat them as if they are utterly cut off from all hope of salvation. Reach out to them, warn them of the consequences of the rebellion, and pray that they might be given a sound mind. You, you excommunicate them with the hope that this individual will prove himself to be a brother who will be ashamed and then turn from his sinful behavior. And this would lead to, if he does repent, he's not an enemy. Gladly receive him. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So Paul has given instruction to the idle. He tells them to repent, work quietly, earn your own living. Get out of bed, you sluggard. And he's given instruction to the workers, or to the, those in the church who work, saying, if, if they don't listen to these warnings, mark them out, excommunicate them. And not only does Paul give instruction to the church on how to deal with the idol, but um, he also, in verse 13, gives more instructions to those who are workers. And he says this, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Now, why would they grow weary in doing good? Well, we already discussed how they were likely irritated with the lazy, and this could have caused them to feel the same way about those who were truly in need. It is quite easy when you're being taken advantage of to grow uh, impatient and irritated, even with those who are truly in need. We can be tempted to lump all people in the same category. Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't grow weary in helping those people who are truly in need just because you have a few bums in the church. And this takes a lot of discernment for us to put into practice. Take each individual on a case-by-case -case basis. Maybe there are some lazy in the church who ought to be excommunicated, left to themselves, put in shame. Maybe there are lazy unbelievers who you are feeling generous toward, and in order to evangelize them, you give them some assistance. And I think that's perfectly acceptable, but I think we need to weigh the options and look at each person individually rather than treating everyone the same. Either way, Paul says, don't grow tired and the good work that you are doing for others. So now that we have looked at Paul's specific instructions to this young church, we come to our third point, where we will look at Paul's example. And Paul's example to the church is kind of sandwiched in between those verses concerning how they ought to deal with lazy individuals. The instructions are at the beginning and the end of the passage, and Paul's example is in the center. And so starting at verse 6, so he tells them, keep away from any idle brother who does not walk in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So what was the tradition that they had received from Paul? Well, he goes on to tell us in verses 7 through 10. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. And when we were with you is a reference to uh, Paul's second missionary journey when Paul, Silas, and Timothy had recently visited Thessalonica. So while, we're there, while, while they were there, he said, Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Paul reminds them, 
of when he was visiting with them, and he uses himself as an example, saying, when we were with you, we worked hard so that we would not be a burden to you. We didn't come being a burden, laying upon the church the responsibility to feed us without pay, as some of the idle among them were doing, but in order to be an example to all in the church, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they labored, they worked quietly, they earned their own living, and they paid for all that they needed. Paul here is not willing to impose a burden upon them that he would not willingly take upon himself. He's leading by example. So verse 9, Paul then says that he had a right to receive compensation and to be cared for the church for his labors. And so the point here is that those who labor in the gospel have a right to be compensated for the work in the gospel. This is why pastors will receive their pay for the work in the church. In 1 Timothy uh, it says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. Right? The ox has a right to eat from the work that he is doing to benefit from it. Uh, also, the laborer deserves his wages. And of course, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul says, hey, I'm an apostle. I have a right to receive compensation for the work I'm doing. But he didn't exercise that right. He forsook that right when he was with them in order to be an example to the church. He saw lazy people, said, we want to fix this. I'm going to command you to do this, and I'm going to work with you. I'm going to get in the dirt with you so we can try and remedy this and fix this situation. So we have seen Paul's commands to the church. We have seen Paul's example for the church, which brings us to our fourth point, which is to focus directly upon the sin of idleness. I understand that the extent of laziness and idleness in Thessalonica was pretty severe. I'd argue that if you want an example of the grossest form of this sin, look no further than the Thessalonians, who willfully chose to do nothing and be a burden to those around them, forsaking the responsibility to work. Although that is the grossest way to break this command, I think it is helpful for us to consider what ways we may be breaking this command in our own lives. Especially because Paul sees it as serious enough to issue a stern rebuke to these people. Now, we may not be deadbeats, but we do find ways to avoid the work that ought to be done. And so these Thessalonians can serve as an example for us. So the first thing I like to make mention of in light of these freeloading Thessalonians is that like every other sluggard, they love to make excuses. They love to make excuses. Their excuse, again, was that there was no reason to do anything because Christ was uh, soon to return. Why bother doing work when someone else can do the work for you and they'll be charitable and just give to you? Why bother? Well, the Proverbs have much, much to say about idleness And 26, 13 through 16 illustrates this trait of the sluggard who makes excuses. Starting at 13, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes. Than seven men who can answer sensibly. 
Has this ever any, confused anyone? What, why does a sluggard say there's a lion in the road? Well, the road is where the work is to be done or the method by which the sluggard can get to his work. And so as his master calls him out to his job site, the sluggard's excuse is, I can't. I can't go outside. There's a lion out there. It's, it's much safer to stay indoors resting in my bed. And the reality is the sluggard is not scared of the lion at all. In the daytime, when work is to be done, the lions are in their dens, resting. What the sluggard is scared of the most is not the lion, but it's his work. The sluggard is scared of his work. And so he creates this excuse so that he may justify himself in his laziness. Not only is this a lie, an avenue for the individual to escape the terrible duty of work that has been laid before him, but he makes up this scenario that he appears to be noble as he lies in his bed. So we must ask ourselves, how many excuses do we tell ourselves and others so that we can be appear, so that we can appear to be justified in avoiding the work that needs to be done? I think first and the most obvious excuse that we may all be guilty of is that we don't have time. How many times have you said to yourself, I really need to get the dishes done, need to mow the yard, need to change the oil, whatever. It, it could be anything. But you know what? That can wait. I don't think I need to do that right now. I think I need to get some rest. I'm awful tired. And then you mosey on into your bedroom. You lay down on your soft bed and lay your head on your pillow. And then you pull out this fantastic little device, your cell phone. And the next thing you know, you've been scrolling for an hour or so, or maybe more, through social media. And I can use that excuse because that's something I've been guilty of before. That's from personal experience. That's an excuse. If I were really tired and I really needed to sleep, I would have went to sleep. I would have gone to bed, my eyes would have been heavy, and I would have gotten the rest that I received. However, what is revealed to us when we behave that way is that our desire for a life of ease is paramount to a life dedicated to work, to accomplishing the things that need to be done. And I think if we all looked at the screen time on our phones, we would see how much time we have wasted on trivial things, things that have no eternal significance. I'm not saying you can't use phones. I'm not saying that it's, you, you can't do those things. I'm saying consider the amount of time that we use um, in things that are trivial. When we make excuses, it's not that we cannot, but we will not. The sluggard who makes excuses then, goes on in the Proverbs, turns on his bed like a door turns on his hinges. And now this individual is pictured as having hinges on his back and is securely fastened to his bed, turning from side to side, but never really going anywhere or doing anything. There's a line outside. He can't do work. And so just as a door is never removed from its position, it sways back and forth. The sluggard doesn't do anything either. I mean, really, I suppose the door is probably more useful than a sluggard. At least it's being used for the purpose that it was made. The sluggard avoids the work he was created to do. And because he makes excuses and avoids work, he never gets anything done. And the sluggard will find that he is always plagued with much to do. 
which means you have much to do, that the sluggard is always in a hurry. He's always rushing to get things done that should have been done when he had the time to do it. By neglecting to do things in their proper time, the idle always have way too many things to do. And in fact, you make work harder on yourself. There's the example of the one who doesn't fix the thatch on the, on the cottage, so it eventually deteriorates and he has to build a whole new cottage. You make more work for yourself when you don't take care of things that need done. And our excuses, that's also called a procrastination, right? We procrastinate, which makes us in a hurry to get things done that need to be done. Uh, this was something sent to me by Pastor Dave last week or two weeks ago. Uh, I think maybe some of you have seen it floating around on the internet, but I thought it was helpful. Uh, procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God owes you another opportunity to do what you already had time to do. God has given us time to do things. In fact, he's given us six days to work and one day to rest. Now, maybe you have too much to do, and if that's the case, I would say, suggest, like, look at your time. Look at your responsibilities. Weigh those options. See if you, you might have too much on your plate. But you might not. You might also just be lazy. I don't know. That's, that's for you to decide, to, to think through. I can't say. Another more cunning way that we can avoid work is by ordering our time so that we never have time to get to the work that needs to be done. We, we will set priority for things that we don't mind to do, that are easier. And in doing so, we refuse to do the big things that we want to neglect. So this isn't a real scenario. This is just something I was kind of thinking of. It'd be like having a friend who said, I need to move on Saturday. Can you come help me move? Sure, I can be there, but I need to mow the yard. I need to do this, 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 the house, uh, whatever it may be. But you don't want to help move so you can be somewhat deceitful and you can put your work off. So that way, when the time to do the real work comes, you say, oh, I have things to do, which is true. You have things to do, but the lie is you had time to do it. You just didn't do it. You set priority, and you've placed a burden on your brother's back because you just didn't want to help. You found other reasons to avoid doing work. That's a more cunning way that we can be deceived. And there's another excuse, and I, I want to be sensitive to this and say this carefully. Another excuse may be that you are depressed or that you're grieving and that you just can't bring yourself to care for the simple everyday tasks that need to be done. I understand that life is filled with troubles. I understand, so I want, again, I want to be careful. Avoiding work will not bring rest to the hurting heart, though there is certainly a time for grieving. There is a time for grieving, there's a time for mourning, and when those things happen, the church ought to come alongside the hurting individual and assist them in things to make their life easier so they can, the, the pains of life might be lessened. But there does come a point in time when we must press onward. Um, a, another use, another word used for those who are walking in idleness is those who are walking in disorder. It's disorderly, meaning you look to the created order and to not work or to work too much without rest or to rest too much without work is disorderly. It's a dysfunctional. And living a disordered life will not restore order to the hurting. If only thing, it will only compound troubles and multiply your hardships. It will not make life easier avoiding the things that need to be done if anything, it might make you more depressed. 
because there's a sense of accomplishment whenever we work and do things, is there not? It feels vain. You, you, know, you, you keep doing work, and then it's undone. You have to keep doing it over again. But there's a sense of accomplishment whenever you do the work that you need to do. Another thing that we see with these Thessalonians is they thought they were wise, which, again, we see in the Proverbs. 26.16, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. And so here you have sensible men, the apostles, telling them, he's told them three times to stop. Paul addressed this issue when he was with them. He addressed this issue in the first letter and in the second letter. And they won't listen because they believe they are wise and don't need the apostles' instruction. The sluggard is often wiser in his own eyes and can convince himself as the one who said there's a lion in the streets, he might have convinced himself there is really a lion. I can't do anything. He thinks he's wise. He might believe that lie. And the third thing we see is that idleness leads to a host of other sins. This is verse 11. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. So the idle were not busy with their own work. They were busy meddling in everyone else's work. I think we all know someone like that who will not lift a finger to contribute anything to the work being done, but will quickly critique the work someone else is doing without offering a single solution or a helping hand. The idol had nothing to do, so they would go from house to house of those who were charitable to them and dig around in other people's business that they have no use for, and they begin to slander and gossip, carry out rumors everywhere they went. After all, what else were they to do with their time? They weren't working. I'm sure you've all, uh, all heard the saying, idle mans are the devil's workshop. Right, so the man who wastes his time in sloth offers himself to be a great target of the devil. Spurgeon said the idle man tempts the devil to tempt himself. The idle man tempts the devil to tempt himself. The devil can and will make use of the sluggard. When we avoid work, we give ourselves over to plenty of time. We give ourselves over to plenty of time to be tempted by various things. And so up to this point, I've been speaking mostly about physical labors, which we are to participate in, and how we can ne neglect them. But what about the spiritual work that is to be done among Christians? Solomon says that you can tell an idle man by looking at his vineyard. Now, we don't have vineyards here in town, but we do have houses. And you can surely relate when you drive by someone's house. You can tell who the idle are by looking at their property, typically. The one that is consistently unkept. Maybe the siding is falling off. If you were to go inside the house, you would find likely that the condition inside the house is worse than on the outside. And so just as thorns and thistles have grown up on the vineyard of the lazy, have thorns and thistles grown upon your hearts due to neglecting the spiritual disciplines that we should be making use of regularly? Do we make excuses for not having time to read God's word, to pray? When we are idle in our spiritual lives, in a sense what we are saying is that we are wiser than God, that we don't need his counsel from his word, I'm not making time for it. You obviously don't think you need it. Nor do we need to go to him for spiritual help when we neglect prayer. That's why we pray. We need help. We can't live this life apart from the work of the Spirit and God assisting us. 
when we are sluggards in the spiritual things, the devil is given fine material to plant seeds of doubt and mischief in the hearts of God's people. Do we fashion excuses for why we do not have the time to participate in family worship? And this is something I must confess I've struggled with, with me and my wife, Keely. Keely and I work different schedules throughout the week. She comes home, I'm going to work. I come home, she goes to work. It's like a high five, have a good day, see you later, love you. And sometimes you can think to yourself, if only I had more time. And I think that might be the case for many people. But the reality is, many of us make time to be entertained. We have time where we're doing nothing. Do you not have time where you're sitting around not doing anything? And we don't capitalize on those opportunities. When we do this, when we behave this, this way, it's not that we cannot, but it's that we will not have family worship. How often is it that we allow other things to consume our time that ought to be given over to God? And lastly, this will be brief. What is the remedy for the idol? Well, first, it is to repent. Repent. If you see yourself being idle, whether it be in your physical labors or in your spiritual endeavors, turn from your sin. Christ died for the slugger, too. Turn from your sin. Second, second remedy is simply this. To remember that our rest is in heaven, as we will sing. It's not here. As we wander through the difficult uh, the difficulties of this life and this difficult wilderness as sojourners. Life and all of our pursuits, they bring aches, pains. Again, there's a sense of futility in it. The work never ends. It just keeps coming, right? It just keeps coming. Keep using this example. You do the dishes. By the end of the day, dishes need done. Mow the yard. Halfway through the week, yard needs cut. It never ends. It, it seems like it's so futile. That's a consequence, the pains of labor due to the fall. And not only does physical work have its aches and pains, but spiritual ministry has its hardships as well. It's difficult. There are many difficult things placed on us. You have people that get sick. You have people that die. You have difficulties in marriages. It seems that this work is never, ever ending. But how can we persist to continue on in this difficult work that we are called to do? Well, by looking to the eternal Sabbath that we will one day enter into when God calls us home from this treacherous wilderness. May we work hard in all things, being diligent, and truly earn the rest we have when we lay our head on the pillow at night. May that be said of us all. But may we do that knowing that our eternal rest has been secured for us of no work of our own in Christ. And just as he has entered his rest, we too, by faith, will enter into that glorious eternal rest when we are called home. This life is temporary. The pains of life are temporary. It's not eternal. May we seek to honor God in all that we do and repent from our idleness and whatever that looks like for each of you. I'll end with this quote from Matthew Henry. Hold on your way and hold on to the end. We must never give over and tire in our work. It will be time enough to rest when we come to heaven. Let's pray.
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction that it gives to us, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you reveal to us in whatever ways it is that we transgress this command that you have given us six days to work and get all things done, and then a seventh to rest. Lord, may we endeavor to do what we've been created to do, to subdue creation, and may we not neglect our disciplines in our spiritual life, like reading and praying and worshiping with each other. And as we work hard in the week, may we come to the Sabbath day that we have before us now and get a sense and a foretaste of that rest that is to come in heaven when our work is done. Lord, we long for that day, but until that day, let us continue on. May we be known for our good Christian work ethic. We ask these things all in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.